Jeremiah 26, verse 7. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. When Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, You must die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house will be like Shiloh, and this city will be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered about Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat in the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. Then the priests and the prophets spoke to all the officials and to all the people, saying, A death sentence for this man, for he has prophesied against this city as you have heard in your hearing. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and to all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that you have heard. Now therefore amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will change His mind about the misfortune which He has pronounced against you. As for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as is good and right in your sight. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on its inhabitants. For truly, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Turn over to chapter 27. Chapter 27, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, and by the way, if your Bible says another name like Jehoiakim, it's wrong. It is Zedekiah. And we can base that on the rest of the entire chapter. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. And send word to the king of Edom and the king of Moab and the king of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre and to the king of Zidon by the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Skip down to verse 11. The nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land, declares the Lord, and they will till it and dwell in it. I spoke words like all these to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and the fifth month, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gabeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I am going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. Skip down to verse 11. Hananiah. Or verse 10, Hananiah took, uh, the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. And then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Lord, as we see this overview of these three chapters... We don't ask just that we see a connection here, but that we would understand the placement of these and the teaching that comes with it. What do you have for us this morning? Father, give us ears to hear. Lord, we know that Jeremiah spoke words that were unheeded. 
Though they were unheeded by His own people, may they not be unheeded by us this morning. And so we ask Your Holy Spirit, would You, Lord, be at work on our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no doubt many of you heard of the horribly tragic sinkhole that opened up under a home in Sefner, Florida on February the 28th. 35-year-old Jeffrey Bush was sleeping in his bed when he was pulled into the ground. I mean, just a terrifying thing to have happen. He's buried there. His brother, Jeremy, tried to get to him, but had to be hauled out and rescued himself as the sinkhole continued to open up. We're told in the news articles that Jeremy watched helplessly as rescue attempts proved futile because the ground continued to collapse before them, and eventually they brought in four truckloads of gravel to fill up the hole and bury his brother. And that's a tragic story, and I thought about what it must have been like for Jeremy to stand on the edge of the sinkhole and know that his brother was being lost. And I thought, wow, what a parallel. Jeremy watching his brother lost. Jeremiah stood on the precipice, on the edge of a sinkhole, watching his people go down. All of his people. Jeremiah would watch, 2,600 years ago, standing in a similar place, he would watch his beloved kingdom of Judah literally fall into a sinkhole of sin and rebellion. He would watch physically, as the entire city of Jerusalem, the magnificent temple of Solomon, sank under the oppression of Babylon and finally burned to the ground as Nebuchadnezzar's forces came in and waylaid the entire city in 586 B.C. In the magazine and the newspaper articles, Jeremy Bush said he felt absolutely helpless. No one was doing anything. No one was willing to go in and and try and retrieve his brother or his brother's body. Jeremiah must have felt absolutely helpless as his cries fell on deaf ears. As he tried, as he pleaded with the people, the Word of God, to change direction. Now, Wednesday night, we studied through chapters 26, 27, and 28. If you are unable to be there, I strongly recommend that you listen to the teaching online. Not because of the presentation, but because of the content, what the Lord teaches us in that. And we're going to touch on some things this morning, but the whole teaching is absolutely worth your time uh, if you you so choose to go and listen to it. Jeremiah was without a doubt the most opposed prophet of his day. There were others that were opposed, other prophets of the Lord who were killed, who were taken out, who were opposed by the people. But Jeremiah, as you already know by now, not a single one of his words went heeded. Nobody listened. Nobody got saved by the preaching of Jeremiah. But what's remarkable to me about this man is how he handled it all. We truly get to watch the prophet mature in his own faith. We saw back in chapter 15, the final complaints, really, of Jeremiah, complaining to the Lord, struggling with all the opposition, and yet now we come into these chapters and we start to see a change. We see a man who knows how to stand for the Lord. And as I read through chapters 26, 27, and 28, the message that came across so strong to me was a message of a man who stood in a time of opposition. And so in considering this, and unable really to get away from it this morning, I asked the question, how do we stand in days of opposition? How do we as followers of Jesus, as Jesus people, how do we stand in these increasingly oppositional days? Three things I'd like you to note right up front. 
In chapter 26, Jeremiah is opposed by the priests and the pseudo-prophets. They haul him into court. They sentence him to death, all because he simply spoke God's word. Go back to chapter 26 and look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord to Jeremiah, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship and in the Lord's house all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. Do not omit a word. How do we stand in these last days? Do not omit a word of the Gospel. Do not omit a word. Don't leave anything out. Tell the whole Gospel of Jesus Christ. But to not omit a word, you've got to know the word, right? And I believe it is incumbent upon the church today to know God's word like we've never known His word before. And we've talked about, we see the kind of opposite tending to happen in churches and denominations and fellowships. Going for Bible light rather than for the full meal. We cannot preach the whole word if we don't know the whole word. But one of the number one things I would say I believe the Lord would say to us in these days of opposition is that we do not omit a word. Look at verse 12 of chapter 26. Jeremiah, here's what he does. He comes up on the stand for his own defense. And he says to all the people, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that you have heard. Now therefore, amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will change His mind about the misfortune which He has pronounced against you. But as for me, I'm in your hands. Do with me as is right and good. That's His defense. What's His defense? To preach the Gospel. (laughs) He doesn't defend Himself. He doesn't even defend the message except to say it's from the Lord. But what Jeremiah does is he uses that platform, that opportunity of his own persecution in the face of opposition to say, listen, repent. Amend your ways. Turn back to the Lord. This is a man whose heart is for his people who does not omit a word that he is told to give. Jeremiah 23.28 Remember from last Sunday we studied this. Let him who has my word speak my word in truth. Don't omit a word. Use every opportunity to speak the gospel, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Second thing to note in chapter 27. God tells Jeremiah in this chapter, very interesting, and it's connected to chapter 28. Chapter 28 is the beginning. Chapter, or chapter 27 begins it. Chapter 28 is the fallout from it. But in 27, God says, Jeremiah, I want you to make a wood and leather yoke. A yoke like you would put farm animals under. Oxen to draw the plow. But I want you to wear it. So here comes Jeremiah into the temple area, walking around Jerusalem with this big yoke, wooden yoke on his shoulders, strapped on. And he's walking around with this thing. God says, I want you to wear this as an object lesson to show that any nation who will accept the yoke of Babylon will be able to live on their own land and till their own soil. In other words, I am the one putting this yoke on your shoulders, God says. I'm the one that's called Nebuchadnezzar. He even calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. I'm the one doing this. Accept my yoke. Chapter 27, verse 11, he says, The nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land, declares the Lord, and they will till it and dwell in it. It's God's way of saying, I'm putting this yoke on you, receive it, 
And even if it's a bit oppressive, understand there will be blessing in the burden. Blessing in the burden. Some of you, and I myself have wondered, what if these days become oppressive? What if laws and rules are passed in America and government becomes bigger and our American way of life becomes more oppressed? What do we do? How do we stand for Jesus in oppressive times or oppositional days? Accept His will. Accept His will and you will till. Accept His will and you will till. Do not omit a word that He's spoken to you. And secondly, accept His will and you will till. It may be hard. It may get more difficult. There may be burdens There may be burdens on your life right now. Accept His will and you will till. What are you saying, Rick? Jesus said, My Father is glorified in this, John 15, 8, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. He didn't say, my Father will be glorified in this, that your life is easier. That everything goes your way. That everything falls together exactly as you have planned for it to in your life. That's not what the promise of God is. The promise is, accept my will and you will be fruitful. And oftentimes, and you know this to be true, fruitfulness oftentimes comes in the most difficult of lives. The blessing gets bigger when someone endures under hardship or opposition or oppression. There's no guarantee that life won't be hard. Only that in it we will still bear fruit to God's glory. Do not omit a single word. Accept His will and you will till. And thirdly, in chapter 28, we see Jeremiah opposed again. This time by the false prophet Hananiah. Hananiah, this false guy, stands up and proclaims, Jeremiah's wrong. His message is, is completely wrong. In two years, everybody who has already been taken to Babylon is coming home. And all the vessels that have been taken out of the temple are going to be returned. In two years, everything is going to be fine. And in verse 10 of chapter 28, it tells us, Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it i got to tell you, if Jake came up here and I was given some kind of object lesson, he broke my little object. <laughs> I would declare him in that moment to be a false prophet. <laughs> Don't worry, students, he's not. But can you imagine the audacity of this guy to grab this yoke off of Jeremiah's shoulders and smash it on the ground and then declare in the presence of all the people humiliating, undermining Jeremiah... Verse 11, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. What does Jeremiah do? Deck him? That's what I was hoping for. No, it says, Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. He walked away. Shades of Jesus looking at the temple in a complete mess, the money changers and everything else, and walking away. And then coming back the next morning and dealing with it in a godly and a righteous way as he clears the temple. That's what Luke tells us happened. And so here Jeremiah, the same thing. He's offended. He's opposed. He's even attacked, we might say, by this Hananiah. And his immediate response, he walks away. And then he hears from the Lord. And the rest of the chapter tells how he comes back and brings the judgment of the Lord. How do we stand in these days? How do we stand in days of opposition? Thirdly, with quiet confidence in the truth. 
with quiet confidence in the truth. See, the nice thing about not omitting the word, knowing the word well enough so that we don't omit a word, is that we'll have confidence in the word. And even as you share it, if you're opposed, if you're undermined, if you're humiliated for it, that you can walk away because it's not your word, it's His word. And it's a true word. And we can trust in His word, and so we don't have to get all upset about it. Don't return, and this is key this morning, don't return opposition with opposition. We're not called to act the way the world so often will act. Speak the truth, but don't go on the defensive. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have nothing to defend. Jeremiah is attacked, he walks away. He waits on the Lord for response. And Paul says in Romans 12.18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And note in verse 12, the word of the Lord indeed, it came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and speak to Hananiah saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. And I have also given him the beasts of the field. And then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to remove you from the face of this earth. This year you're going to die. Because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So, Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. Quiet confidence in the truth. Thursday morning, a pastor stood on my front porch expressing serious concern over the impact on local churches in Anacortes by the Christian terraformers. We talked about this three or four weeks ago. Let's talk about the fact that there's a, a group that's coming in and it is undermining churches and people being, are being pulled out of churches by this group. Supposedly, simply praying for the city of Anacortes. The reality is that it's all, it's all based on a new revelation. My friends, be careful. You may have new understanding, but the revelation is not new. The revelation has been here for 2,000 years. And God is not going to give a new revelation. He has given the revelation. It is Jesus Christ. He's the revelation. And as we seek to understand, and again, man, there's not a time I open the Scriptures where I don't go, wow, I've never seen that before. And it's new to me. But it's not new. This Christian terraforming group is based on a couple who are saying they've been given a new revelation by the Lord. And their group are the ones blessed. And their group are the ones who are moving forward. This group we spoke about. Well, this pastor stood on my porch, and, and I, I won't name him right now, but he, he I, I highly respect him. He's a really good guy, servant of the Lord. And he said to me, Rick, there are several Anacortes pastors who are really concerned about this. Apparently there was a, a group of the pastors that met just last week, and they were praying about it and talking about it, saying, we're seeing two bad things happening right now. Christians are being drawn off. Good, faithful Christians are being drawn off by this new revelation. But equally bad, and I would say worse, apparently some non-Christians are being put off by Christianity because of what this group is doing. 
Like every other fringe group that claims a new revelation, you know, the truth is, one way or another, this group is going to go. They come and they go. They come and they go. There's always a new buzz in the church. There's always someone who's written a new book. There's always someone who has a new idea. There's always a new plan. And this pastor friend of mine even made the comment, and I totally agree. He said, why is it that people are so drawn away by the latest, newest thing? Why can't we just walk on God's Word? And I heard the words of Jeremiah in my head, walk the ancient paths. Stay with the truth. Be faithful. You know, faithfulness is not about the latest buzz. It's about walking in truth. And we have the truth of the Word of God. So this group, they'll go like everyone has, but it's hard. And we look at these things, and again, I come back to the issue, how do we stand for Jesus in an increasingly oppositional world? Opposition from without, people pressing against the church, and opposition from within, the church pressing against the church sometimes. And I'm the first to admit and confess, we're messed up people. You know, you don't go to the church looking for perfect people. You go to the church because we need Jesus. Our affinity as believers is Jesus Himself, not our goodness. Thank goodness. But how are Jesus' people to stand in these oppositional days? Well, all that I've already told you, I didn't really want to talk about this morning, it was mainly review. Let's get to the sermon. There is a larger overriding principle here that we see in Jeremiah, I saw across these chapters, and have been just stewing over the last few days. It flies in the face of human instinct. When I think about opposition, when I've been opposed in the past, be it playing on a basketball team, opposed by the other team, or in relationships, opposed by someone who was just against me personally, or we had some conflict. When I've been opposed in the past, I always have had that tendency, there's that human instinct to stand up for yourself, you know? The self-defense. And it comes from a selfish nature. We are not called as Christians, to take the position of opposition. But as I said Wednesday night, we are called to take a position of submission. It's not opposition. It's submission. Jeremiah's opposition to the popular prophecies and philosophies of his day were only because of his submission to the Lord. He was submitted to God. He spoke what he spoke because he had to. Because it was God's word, it was God's will, and Jeremiah was determined to be about God's business and not that of Judah or the surrounding world. I think we need a paradigm shift. I think we need to rethink perhaps how we as Christians respond. How we act in an oppositional world. I'm not going to go into all the socio-cultural reasons for it, but somewhere along the line, and this is just my opinion... But I think Western Christianity seems to have developed an attitude that says this. If we're not opposed to something, we're really not being faithful. That we express faithfulness in being contentious. You know? Jude wrote, Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. The third verse of Jude's little letter. Contend earnestly for the faith. The word there is epagonizomai. Epagonizomai. Say that slowly. Epagonizomai. You hear the word agony in there? It's because the word means to agonize over. 
to labor earnestly for. Contend earnestly for the faith means agonize over the presentation of the faith. Hang in there with the faith. Labor earnestly for the faith that we have been given. But understand this. To contend for the faith does not mean to be contentious. It doesn't mean to be cantankerous. It doesn't mean to be oppositional. Yes, we are opposed in many ways. But we don't respond oppositionally, contentiously. Look at Jesus. Nobody faced greater opposition than Jesus Christ. And yet Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.21, you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth, and while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering... He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you are healed. That is so radically different than the way I think. It is so 180 degrees opposite of human instinct and intuition, and that is to stand for myself. To defend myself and my faith. By God, I'm going to defend my faith. Jesus uttered no threats. Jesus did not stand opposing and reviling in return. And we're called to be like Jesus. And I I think that the faith we contend for, our struggle, is unlike any other conflict in human history. To stand for Jesus in this world is unlike any other battle ever fought. Any other war ever waged. It's both immediate and it's eternal. It is both physical and it's spiritual. It is absolutely unique. But we don't win over the opposition, however great or small, by standing in opposition. When I teach and I'm I'm preaching here and we're looking at the Word of God... Sometimes we look at big things, big eternal things, global things, and future things. And it's very easy for me just to get lost in this grand theology of Bible study and Bible teaching and forget the fact that it's a mindset and a heart set that equally affects common everyday things. You know, relationship struggles. How do I as a Christian deal with an argument with my spouse? How do I as a Christian deal with oppression from a boss? How do I handle daily stress? What do I do when I have a friend who has for whatever reason decided to be opposed to me? How do I do those things? And yet on the other end of it, it's an extraordinary spiritual battle going on. So you see, it's both. We're engaged in a huge, massive, eternal struggle and an everyday, itty-bitty struggle. How you live your life, how I live my life. And both are affected. And so we've got to learn not to compartmentalize how to be a believer in Christ on the big scale eternally and our life over here on the small scale. It's all the same thing. We don't win over the opposition. Whether it's great or whether it's small, we don't win by standing in opposition. Husbands, you will not win your wives by opposing them. 
Wives, you will not win your husband's heart by opposing him. Friends, you will not solve relationship struggles by being opposed to one another. It's not how it works. Not if you're following Jesus. We win out only as we learn to stand in submission like Jesus and to Jesus. What exactly does all this look like? Turn over to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. I just want you to note a few verses here because I believe it speaks to this whole different paradigm that we're called to in how to stand in submission, not in opposition. Here's the deal. Verse 15, 1 John chapter 4. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's where it starts. That's the answer right there when someone says, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be a Christian? You even a Christian? Well, what does this mean? What's, what's the? Is there a rule book? Is there a set of things that I got to go through? Do I have several steps I have to take to get there? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God's abide, God abides in Him, and He in God. It starts right there. Jesus is with the boys. Matthew sixteen fifteen. He says, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter said, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And by the way, that's not a new revelation. It's the oldest revelation in the book. But Jesus Christ is the Messiah, Son of the living God. So standing for Jesus in an oppositional world, it begins by confessing Jesus. You stand up when you confess Him. It's the moment that it starts... But confessing Him is not just spouting fact about Him. Confessing Jesus is not just saying Jesus lived 2,000 years ago in Israel, the Galilee. He taught, He died, He resurrected, that's it. It's more than that. The word confess in the Greek is homologeo, where we get our word homologous. Homologeo. It means to be in agreement with. It means to be in allegiance to. To confess Jesus is both to agree with Him and to be in allegiance to Him. I am in agreement and allegiance with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and when I enter into that allegiance, God entered me and I entered Him. Which is just stunning to me. It doesn't mean that I somehow became little Godric. Or, or that I somehow became divine. See, the reality is I'm still me. And He's still God. But when I come into that point of agreement and allegiance with Him, the supernatural happens. He invades my heart and He abides there. And I begin then to live in Him. He in me and, and, and I in Him. In other words, and you might want to jot this down, we stand belonging The moment you step into allegiance with Jesus, you belong to Jesus. You're His now. You are not your own. Paul said, you've been bought with a price. And the price was every last drop of His blood. We stand belonging. John 14.23, Jesus said, if anyone loves Me, he'll keep My word. And My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. I belong. 
we stand belonging. And belonging to Jesus comes by this great confession of agreement and allegiance to His person and to His Lordship, to His authority over me. And so I stand in submission. Belonging to Jesus, that's where it begins. But read on, verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. Side note, when you study the Bible, that is the parameter you have to study the Bible with. God is love. Amen. You start in the place of God's love and then every single thing that God does throughout every page of Scripture is filtered through that. Telling Israel to wipe out a nation is because God is love. How does that work? Well, I'll let you struggle with that. We've talked about it as we've studied through the history of Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures. But that's got to be the filter. Not God is hate. Not God is vengeance. Not God is mean-spirited. God is love. But the marvelous thing for you as a follower of Jesus, you confess Jesus. You stand belonging. Will you also, secondly, you stand beloved. We stand beloved. Think about that. You can be told by every person on the face of the planet that you don't belong, that you don't count, and that everybody hates you. I think I'll eat some worms. (laughs) But the truth is, I stand belonging and I stand beloved and nothing anybody can say can change that. I belong to Jesus. I'm beloved by Him. How does a man like Jeremiah stand absolutely alone and opposed in Judah of his day? Because he belonged to God. And he knew his father loved him. And I I think, honestly, if I know that, I can deal with anything. I can handle any opposition. Whether it's from within or from without. Whether it's small scale or large scale. Hey, I'm beloved by God. And I belong to Him. Read on, verse 17. By this love is perfected in us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because he, as He is, so also are we in this world. What does that mean? Eternal. You belong to Jesus. Just as God is, so are you. You may die, doesn't matter. You're eternal. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. By the way, beloved, those who stand beloved, how does love and fear work together for believers? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways, and love Him, and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You're supposed to fear Him and you're supposed to love Him, Israel was told. And I've taught more than once here at the bridge that I believe a a working, growing, maturing faith in God needs to have a healthy fear of the Lord. I, I, I absolutely buy that. I think a fear of the Lord is a good thing. And I know that's bothered a few people. And perhaps you're one of them. Oh, but perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. How can you say fear the Lord when perfect love casts out fear? Look at the context. What fear is John saying perfect love casts out? 
Dang, it's fear of punishment. Perfect love. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. In other words, if you're sitting here saying, I'm a Christian. I confess Jesus. I belong to Him. I go to church. But I am scared to death about my eternal condition. I don't know what's going to happen when I die. Then I would say you have yet to be perfected in love. Because if you understand how perfect God's love is for you, you also know that you will not go to hell. That your eternal state is absolutely sure in Jesus. I mean, what a great confidence that believers are given. To be perfected in the love of God is to be made perfect and sinless by the blood of Christ and therefore counted as worthy of salvation... And because of that, jot this down, not only do we stand for Jesus both belonging and beloved, but number three, we stand bold. We have a whole different kind of boldness in an oppositional world. The realization of salvation is a boldness booster. It it gives me the ability to stand up and say, regardless of any situation, I know where I'm going and I know who I'm going to be with. And that's good. In the face of the worst oppression, I fear no opposition. I fear no enemy. I fear no threat. I am bold in Jesus Christ, who said, and I'll write, read it to you again, John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. See, Sean Hannity didn't say that first. <laughs> do not let your heart be troubled. <laughs> believe in God. Believe also in me. See, here's the thing. You Hannity lovers. I've heard him say, do not let your heart be troubled, and then go on to rant and rave about how bad things are, and I end up troubled. (laughs) I do, I do. I turn on the radio and go, man, things are terrible. It's awful. My heart is troubled. Thanks, Sean. You know? Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Well, how can I not let my heart be troubled in this world? Believe in God. Believe in me. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let not your heart be troubled. There's no trouble in that. And so we stand bold, no fear, except for the fear of the Lord. You see, the fear of the Lord remains in play for those who love Him. It's not a fear of, it's not like a Muslim fear of Allah that he might at any moment change his mind and dump me. That's not it at all. The fear of the Lord is a healthy, wholesome fear in the awesomeness of God. In the power of God to affect everything he said he was going to do, including saving little me. And if you don't believe me that both love and fear continue to abide for the believer, listen to Revelation 19 verse 5. A voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. I I, I do fear the Lord with an awesome, humbling, joyful, worshipful love. But we hear in Revelation 19, verse 5, something that's said at the coming of Jesus. And at the coming of Jesus, we are told, You who fear Him, worship Him. And so we do. We stand belonging, we stand beloved, we stand bold, but we don't stand alone. Number four, jot this down, we stand brothers and sisters. Verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, 
he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Christians do not have the luxury of loathing. We don't have the right to hate other people, especially not brothers and sisters in Christ. God does not allow for anyone to love Him without loving every single one of the rest of His children. Now, I've heard this phrase. I've shared it before. I went and looked up who said it. It was Dorothy Day, co-founder of the 1933 Catholic Worker Movement. Dorothy Day said, You only love God as much as the person you love the least. I hate that. Because it is so easy to extol the name of God and worship on a Sunday and say, Lord, I just love you and tears running down my face and I pour out my heart to you. And then there's a brother or a sister or someone who claims to be a believer in another fellowship, denomination or something. And... I just don't like that guy. I love the Lord, but I don't like that guy. That's how much I love the Lord. Now granted, that is one woman's comment, but I think it very well encapsulates exactly what Paul said or John said, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar! John, you can hear him going, liar! I love God, liar! How can you say that, John? Because you hate so-and-so. Because you despise your sister. Because you don't care for your brother. And you cannot have that attitude one for another and say you love God. It doesn't work. Not in God's economy. I mentioned earlier that Western Christian mindset, the Western Christian church mindset, sometimes thinks that the way to express our faith is to be oppositional to someone or something. And as long as we have a cause that we can oppose, then we're, we're faithful. You know, we're walking with Jesus. What's sad about that, and every pastor I've ever talked to has dealt with this, every church leader has dealt with this, what's sad is when that mindset gets expressed by cutting off a brother or a sister or a church fellowship. By saying, I'm through with you people and heading for the door. Unfortunately, with all the different denominations and churches and choices out there, it is all too easy just to go from one place to another. To say, I'm through here. You know what happens? It's like Facebook. (laughs) You don't have to do the hard work of relationship. All you have to do is keep it on the surface. And if you don't like someone, defriend them. And we do it in church. We walk in fellowship. But then someone says something that offends, and we're gone. Because we can. I'll just go over to this church. I'll just hang out with those believers. And the problem is, you're going to find opposition there too. Because the moment you step into the perfect church, you will mess it up. (laughs) By your own presence there. Now listen, I'm not saying that there are not legitimate reasons to leave one fellowship and go to another. I believe there are. And I believe sometimes God says, I really need you over here. 
I believe sometimes the Lord leads us to different places for different reasons. But hear me on this. If you go, whether it's from the bridge somewhere else or to the bridge from somewhere else, if you go, go in love. And maintain brotherly affection for all the saints. Maintain the relationships. Work hard to save the relationships. Because they matter. We don't have to cut off relationships just because we change geography. Somehow we think that we do. When Jesus, with all wisdom and understanding, called forth the church, anointing it with His Holy Spirit at Pentecost, He knew something we've got to remember, and this is it. Gang, we need each other. Amen. We need each other in this world. I need you, even when we're opposed to one another. As iron sharpens iron, so I need to be sharpened in my faith. And in our relationship, we may get in opposition sometimes, and I may be wrong, and I need to learn that, and I will not learn that if you take off. In the same way, you may be wrong, and I may be right in a certain given situation, and unless we do the hard work of relationship together, you won't learn that. We need each other in this world. The Hebrew writer said, Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some. And that is not just about church attendance. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need each other. And the closer we get to the moment of our departure, the more we need each other to stand in this oppositional world. But there's a greater reason for us to stand as brothers and sisters. Chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. I love the way this, this is written. Understand, this is the common denominator of all Christians. It is not color, it is not class, it is not culture. It's not language, it's not affinity, it's not personal interest or anything else. Two men can be in the same fellowship under the affinity of Jesus Christ and have exactly opposite sports teams that they love. I know, it's shocking. You can stand opposed and yet have this affinity in Christ that draws us together. Number five on the list here, we stand born again. Every one of us walking with Jesus, everyone who's confessed Jesus, we stand born again. And John's big on that. John is huge on this whole idea of being born again throughout his gospel. John 1 verse 12, he says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Born again. Even to those who believed in His name, who were born, not of blood or the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. John 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. We must be born again. So what does that mean, to stand born again for followers of Jesus? Listen to the language again in verse 1. It's powerful. Literally, It's whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is begotten of God and whoever loves the begetter loves the begotten of Him. And you can misunderstand that if you see whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ born of God 
is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. That word child is a translator's insert. And you might read that and think, oh, okay, to be... To believe in Jesus is to be born again and it means I love Jesus who was born of Him. It's not what it says. If you're born of Him, you love all those who are born of Him. All who are begotten of Him. Yes, that means Jesus, but it also means every other person who's ever been born again, we love because they, like us, are born again. Are you with me? We stand spiritually begotten of God, loving Him, submitted to Him. And because of it, it causes me to love you. You to love me. It also causes me to be submitted to you. And you to be submitted to me as brothers and sisters, my equally begotten, born again brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And that's what I believe Paul means in Ephesians 5.21 when he says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Oh, there's that fear again. Be subject to one another. How do you stand in an oppositional world? Be subject to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be willing to take the downside, even when you think you're right and they're wrong, maybe in that moment the best thing to do, let's take out the maybe. In that moment, the best thing to do is submit yourself to your brother or sister. I I think I'm right on this, but let's talk about this. Because I want to hear your heart. And I may be missing something. I could be wrong. By this we know, verse 2, that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. A life lived in obedience to God the Father, submitted to Him in the constant flow of His love, in the love of of His begotten ones, this is not a life of burden. That's something you need to tell your non-Christian friends. It's not harder, it's better. It's not a burden, it's a blessing. It's not legalism, it's freedom. And that's the life that we're called into. Remember Jeremiah carrying around that yoke to express the burden of Babylon. That if the nations, including Judah, would simply accept even that oppressive regime... They could live on their own ground and they could till their own soil and they would bear fruit. And so the same is true for us. Even when life is hard, if we are accepting the yoke of Jesus, we're going to bear fruit and it's going to be better. You know the verse, Matthew 11.28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now, let's pull this together. You might think, okay, Rick, your message is called Standing for Jesus in an Oppositional World. And yet you haven't yet mentioned apologetics, or hermeneutics, or defensive measures, or offensive strategies. All we've talked about is submission. Exactly. That's the point. Because submission is our mission. Look at verse 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is 
the Son of God. This is why I say that faith in Jesus is a radically different, even an unhuman mindset. This is not the way we typically think. We are changed when we're born again. We start to think differently. And now, in the face of all opposition, number six, final one, we stand believing. We stand believing. Spurgeon said the very marrow of the meaning of faith is confidence in and reliance upon Jesus. It's not a one-time come-to-the-altar thing. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. That's not an instant. It is a lifestyle. It's how we go day to day. It's so much bigger than coming to the altar, praying a quick prayer of faith. It's an abiding, agreeing, allegiant, constant, trusting faith in Jesus. We stand believing. And that is a faith that overcomes the world. In any opposition. Faith in Christ. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, John 16.33, so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. And in Revelation 3.21, Jesus says this, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with Me on My throne, as I also overcame and sat down with My Father on His throne. I remember as a little kid, having oppositional days, on the playground, I got in my share of fights. Yes, I did. And I remember coming home. And I remember we had this huge black leather stuffed lazy boy chair downstairs in our house. And no matter how oppositional the day, I could crawl up beside my dad in that chair while he read the newspaper and everything was okay. And Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I'm going to grant you to sit with me on my throne. And that's the picture I get. I've shared that before in the Revelation study. That's the picture I get, crawling up with my daddy and sitting in the big chair. And Jesus says, that's yours as overcomers. And this is how I believe we are to stand for Jesus in an oppositional world, belonging, beloved, bold, brothers and sisters, begotten, and believing. Standing for God, standing for Jesus in an oppositional world. Now, let's end here. Go back to Jeremiah 26 real quickly. Jeremiah 26, verse 13. Jeremiah, standing before a very opposed crowd of people, says, Now therefore amend your ways. And your deeds, and obey the voice of the Lord our God. And the Lord will change his mind about the misfortune which he has pronounced against you. As for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as is good and right in your sight. It's just amazing. Jeremiah is not defending himself against the opposition, he is pleading for the opposition. He is standing up for the opposition, submitted completely to the will of God, whatever that might be. Throw me into jail. Put my head and my hands and my feet in the stocks. Kill me. But I'm pleading with you to amend your ways. That's what I want to leave you with this morning. I'd like to switch around the title of the teaching, if I may, and swap the in and the for. Instead of standing for Jesus in an oppositional world, may we learn what it means to stand in Jesus for an oppositional world.
Amen? Let's bow together. Father, I hear the words of Paul. They ring in my ears. I fought the good faith. I have finished the course. And Father, I finally am beginning to realize that the fight of our faith is fighting for our lost world. We're not fighting against. We're not standing against. We are standing for. Because we know the belovedness and the belonging that we have in You. We have boldness in our salvation, Lord. As brothers and sisters, Lord, begotten and believing. And I'm sure I left one out. But Father, we stand before You as Your children in a better place, pleading for the lost in this world. I pray that our language be salted with love. I pray that we would learn how to speak the truth in love. I pray, Father, against defensiveness. I pray against us being offending and contentious. And I pray that You would teach every one of us, and Father, myself more than all, teach us how to be people of grace, living in submission to the will of our Father, and living submitted to a world that desperately needs to hear the truth. Whatever it means for our lives, may we live for You, Lord Jesus. And it's in Your name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. Amen.